Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Welcome. Uh, as Noel mentioned, my name is Brandon Poole. I'm an associate at the law firm Day Pitney LLP here in Boston. Uh, I work on IP matters, specifically pretty much all things trademark and copyright uh, with a focus on the sports industry. Uh, on behalf of my co-chairs, Deanna Sheridan and Demika Fields um, on the Art, Sports and Entertainment subcommittee here at the BBA, uh, just like to thank everybody for joining. Uh, and as Noel mentioned, if you have any questions along the way, please type those into the, the Q&A feature uh, on Zoom here. Um, and of course, the biggest thank you goes to our panelists. Um, we have a great group here. So I'll kick things off quickly with a brief introduction. Um, and then I'll let the panelists introduce themselves further and expand a little bit on their roles and how they got there. So first up is David Safer, uh, who is the Chief Partnership Officer at Three Step Sports. Uh, David has an impressive uh, background and resume uh, in sponsorship and media. Uh, including positions with the Cleveland Browns, Relevant Sports Group, which is involved in soccer events and media, uh, IMG College, USC, Wasserman Media Group, and more. Uh, so welcome, David. Thanks for being here. Next is Shamika Coelho, VP and GC at the Washington Spirit of the NWSL. Uh, like David, Shamika brings a wealth of experience in the sports industry with prior roles at the Chicago Cubs, uh, the International Speedway Corporation, the LPGA, more. Welcome, Shamika. Thanks for being here. And last but not least, Naveen Lokesh is head of global sports marketing basketball at New Balance. Uh, and I think you know we're seeing a theme here. Naveen also has extensive uh, experience with sports marketing, partnerships, media. Uh, prior to New Balance, Naveen spent nearly a decade at the NBA, among other roles. So with that, I'll turn things over to the panelists. Um, starting off with David, can you tell us a little bit more about your path to three-step um, and your day-to-day -day role there? Sure. Thanks, Brennan. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for having me. Uh, David Safer here. I am sitting in Atlantic City, New Jersey. This is my hometown. Um, I went to school at Wake Forest University a long time ago. Thought I was going to be a baseball player. It didn't work out. So I decided to get into sports a different way. I was very, very far from good enough. So I almost actually went to law school. I was uh, getting ready to go to University of Florida Law, but I decided to take a different path, mostly because it seemed like a lot of work and I wasn't sure about Florida in general. So I instead went to NYU for my business degree, uh, master's in sports, and worked for the New York Yankees. My first job, don't hate me. I am a Dodger fan, so we're taking good care of Mookie Betts. Probably shouldn't bring up the Yankees again on this call. So I uh, went to work for Wasserman Media Group. It was in action sports. Part of action sports back many years ago was MMA, mixed martial arts. The UFC called me from Las Vegas and said, would you consider moving out here? I turned them down a few times, but as they continued to grow, it seemed like a great opportunity and it certainly was. I was out there for about seven years in Las Vegas. And uh, at first I was doing digital media and sponsorship, then was promoted to run a lot of the global. So 
over the course of many years, I was in London and Sydney and Sao Paulo and, and a big part of Asia helping run that business. I wanted to move back east. Uh, I had three kids at that point and certainly didn't want to be in Las Vegas. And so decided to move back east, went to FanDuel for a very short amount of time because the attorney general of New York made it illegal about seven months into my tenure there. So thank you to the lawyers. And after FanDuel, I ended up going to relevant. So the soccer tournaments run across the world, primarily in Asia. So I was based out of Singapore. Uh, we had some of the biggest teams in the world. It was a lot of fun in global sponsorship, just really understanding how their rights mix with our rights and a lot of the media assets as well. But it was Manchester United versus Barcelona and Juventus and, and Real Madrid and a lot of the biggest teams. And we had a lot of fun. So uh, pandemic hit. And when your business is in Asia, you're coming back stateside. And so I went to the NFL with the Cleveland Browns uh, over there, ran sponsorship, tickets, premium, media, uh, reunited with an old boss from UFC. So I think one of the greatest compliments you can get is when someone rehires you, enjoys working with you. And, you know, after three and a half seasons in Cleveland, Ohio, which I would have never told you years ago that I would be in Cleveland, I wanted to come back home again and all paths lead back here. And with three step, um, help lead sponsorship, apparel, CVBs, media. It's an incredibly complicated landscape as we're building it all from scratch with a lot of mergers and acquisitions, but it's a lot of fun. So other than that, I am married, have three children, a dog named Franklin Roosevelt, and thanks again for having me. Awesome. Thanks, David. Uh, that was really interesting to hear and interesting that so many different kind of life events and world events have, have impacted your career path. Uh, so awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, next up, Shamika, same question. What was your path to the spirit? Tell us about your current role. Awesome. Uh, thanks again, Brandon. Similar to David, I am a lover of all things sports. Um, I am a huge Yankee fan. I'm from Brooklyn. New York. Sorry, Boston. Um, don't hate me. But uh, very much so believe in the power of relationships and just saying yes to opportunities. Um, so legal for me is a second career. I ran track uh, in undergrad and was a finance major. So really understanding business, all things numbers. Decided to pursue um, another degree considered business school, but kind of law school was where I landed in terms of just my love for being able to analyze a lot of cases, take big parts and break them down into small things. Um, and after law school, I decided, and again, because I was a little bit older when I attended law school, um, for me, a law firm wasn't really ideal. Um, I really liked transactional and understanding the business and be able to pull all the parts together. So um, I interned with the Ladies Professional Golf Association when I was in law school um, and landed a job as associate counsel. I think I got the offer on my second day of taking the bar exam. So in terms of like being open, I knew nothing about women's golf. Um, I knew no one in Florida, which required me to move to Daytona Beach to take the role. Um, but I did know I wanted to learn how to be a good lawyer and that the LPGA, because it was a smaller organization, would really allow me to leave a mark, but also to have a hand in several areas of the business and not just legal. And so that's what started my legal career. Um, from there, I worked at the LPGA for ooh, four years, and then I went down the street to NASCAR, uh, so still in Daytona. So I got a little 
bit of experience with a venue owner operator. So they ran Daytona International Speedway, as well as 12 of other racetracks across the country. They built a multi-use development outside of Daytona Speedway. They built um, apartment buildings, residential buildings um, outside as well. And so like really that to me was my entry into organizations that were thinking not just about their product on the feel or on the track, but more so holistically, how do you create this 365-day entertainment venue? Um, also believe in a power of relationships. My general counsel left uh, the Speedway to join the Chicago Cubs and three months later took me with him. Uh, so I got onto team sport and one of the big four sports and Chicago Cubs story franchise. I uh, had the opportunity to do some incredible things uh, with the Cubs, primarily worked on sponsorship uh, but also I did all labor and employment matters. Um, I did all licensing. I I, already, I did litigation, like you name it. It was, you know, it was um, kind of on my plate. And so like really helpful in terms of helping me to just figure out what I liked, what I didn't like and helping the business move forward. Um, fast forward to a year ago, almost a year ago, I got a call about an opportunity with the Washington Spirit. So which is the women's soccer team here in D.C., uh, opportunity to work for an incredible owner who is trying to take over the world of, of women's soccer um, and build a true, truly a global brand, not just here in D.C., but uh, Michelle Kang is our majority owner. Um, she purchased the London City Lionesses and also the Lyons team in France, the women's team. Um, and so she really is, is leaving a mark. And so I joined here as general counsel and I do all things Legal, I also oversee HR. Um, and because the organization is what I would say still a startup, um, this is her, now this will be her third season owning a team. I really have the ability to, to opine on so many areas of the business, whether it be ticketing strategy, whether it be hiring departments, whether it be analytics, whether it be helping out on corporate partnerships. And so pretty much do all things here um, and helping to move the business forward. So um, I'll stop there and uh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Shamika. I'm glad I'm letting you guys introduce yourselves because this is already you know, super really interesting and you know, different learnings about you know, relationships and uh, being willing to move for opportunities. So uh, awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Naveen, you're up, same question. Yeah, hi everybody. Great to be with you today. Um, as Brian said, my name is Naveen Lokesh. I'm at New Balance now. My path uh, into sports started in college as well as, as these other panelists did. I did not play a sport in college. I wasn't that talented. Um, I fortunately got into the sports department through an internship at our university, which allowed me to see the back-end workings of sports at the organizational and operational level. The, the magic that happens behind sports and athletes. And that really intrigued me, both from the business perspective, but also the human connection and the emotion that sports invokes in lots of people. And I gravitated towards that ability to balance both people and business as my interest. And I uh, was extremely fortunate to graduate and um, take up an internship immediately after college at a bank that was the sponsor of the NBA globally. Um, bank, formerly known as BBVA, Spanish Bank. And through that internship, I was able to get myself to the NBA League office. Um, the headquarters are based in New York, and I started the Global Partnerships Group there. I was able to work on the BBVA Bank Partnership, which was 
one of the first um, truly global sponsorships of the NBA league authors. Um, did that for about two and a half years, managed that account, and then got another phenomenal opportunity to take my talents abroad and get an opportunity to work out of the London office, which oversees the uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa region of the NBA business. And over there, I got a phenomenal opportunity to do two things that really intrigued me. The first was understand how sports and one of the major global leagues operates outside of its home market. So David talked a little bit about international sports and business, and it really is a different um, value proposition overseas. And that's what the NBA does represent. While basketball is endemic to the culture here in, in America, overseas, the Europe proposition value of the NBA is, is very different from just playing basketball. It's the Americana and cultural capital that comes with the NBA basketball. So it's the fashion, the music, um, the hip hop scene, the sneakerhead scene, all of that combined really makes up a large value proposition of the NBA overseas. And I got to work on partnerships there as well and oversaw a lot of EMEA partners um, from American Airlines to Pepsi to Gatorade and got to see them um, leverage their partnerships with the NBA IP over there. Um, in my last two years in Europe, I got to work and flip hats to the business development side, the sales side, which was, again, soliciting new partnerships in, in various markets across Europe and bring them on board as partners. Um, so I completed my time over there just over five and a half years um, between London and Madrid. It was a fantastic experience. And I just miss being kind of home again near my folks. So I moved back to New York and the New York uh, NBA offices and continued on partner management and worked on some really interesting partnerships like ExxonMobil and a host of others. And then I got the phenomenal opportunity to work on New Balance as a partnership manager. And through that partnership, I got to understand and get to know a lot of the individuals on the New Balance side, including our ownership group, the Davis family. And we got to speak over a long period of time and understanding the growth trajectory of New Balance, where it was going and changing its own positioning in the sports um, apparel or space. And that really intrigued me. I'd done a decade at the NBA, was looking for a new opportunity and a new challenge. And being a sneakerhead from my childhood days and having Jordan posters all over my wall um, and collecting shoes over time, it was a dream job in every way to work for a sneaker brand, to continue my work and uh, experience building within the sports industry. So I was jumping at the experience and have now been here for two years. And my role is um, head of global sports marketing for basketball and now our new football division. And there's three pillars to the, to the role that really make up my day-to-day. -day. The first is partnership um, acquisition assessment. So looking at any opportunities the brand may decide to take within basketball and football, from things like the NBA partnership, which we have, to grassroots tournaments on the ground across the country and around the world, and valuing them to see if they really make sense in our plans. And if we do decide to go ahead with that, then evaluating the value, negotiating the terms, and bringing it to contract and handing off to a different team. The second pillar is... Um, athlete acquisition and management so in plainer terms that is the uh, scouting signing and management of professional athletes both at the nba nfl level now at the college and nil level which we'll speak about shortly and managing those relationships with those agents as well as those athletes and making sure that they are delivered the best service in the industry through new balance and then the final pillar which is the most important one uh which i don't get to spend enough time on is the long-term strategic vision and shaping 
of basketball and football as it's represented through the, through the brand. And so that's a anything from a one year to five year to decade long plan of how basketball and football will be used as tools and vehicles to expand and grow the brand holistically. I think that's about it, Brent. Awesome. Thanks, Naveen. That's really, really interesting. Uh, both your international experience and, you know, I don't think we think about here how leagues or, you know, sport is viewed, you know, American sport in, in Europe and things like that. So that was really interesting. Uh, you know, New Balance has really taken off in the last couple of years. So I guess we, we have you to thank uh, in part uh, D'Amica as well. <laughs> Uh, so thank you uh, all for those introductions uh, and a little bit of behind the curtain of, of what you guys are up to. Um, kind of sticking along the lines of that, just generally speaking, you know, going to the, the topic of our uh, webinar today, you know, what does the relationship between, you know, your legal teams and your business teams, you know, sales, partnership, marketing uh, look like in, in general terms? So like we'll go in the same order, uh, David, if you want to start. So I think one of the favorite parts of my job is that I get to work with everyone across the company. You have to be really well-rounded. It's a lot of fun to bring a deal to life while you're working with marketing, operations, finance, legal, across the board, every department really. And you know, you meet a lot of great people and you learn quite a bit in this particular role in partnerships because you do have to know, you know, if I'm thinking like a CMO to go get a deal for my product or service. I have to be thinking that way internally and externally. So, you know, there's no surprises, but everyone needs to be involved early. I think that's a that's a big key to this. So I certainly wouldn't want to show up to my legal team and say, hey, do you mind signing this? This is something that we want to present to you. We want to make sure that they come in, you know, as negotiations are happening. So that works with marketing as well. You know, we want to make sure that as we're having brainstorms, that they are part of that conversation. So to avoid some headaches later. Um, but every deal involves the legal team, right? And you can't avoid it. So um, some like the lawyer I had at UFC, no names, because this is being recorded. I probably wouldn't bring into a meeting, you know, not the right personality, a little bit litigious. Some like Deanna are thought leaders at our company, and I would bring into any meeting and certainly have a role for that because she can be visionary and she can be part of the process so that, you know, we get the right, we craft the right deal points, we have the right strategy, and, and we work on those rights together. So I'll be brief there, but they're involved early and they're involved often. I think that's a key point. Uh, very, very interesting. Thanks. Thanks, David. Uh, Shamika, what about you? Yeah, I think that that David, um, as a business partner, is someone that I would um, absolutely love to work with. Um, I think one of uh, the pieces of advice that I learned very early on was that you don't want to be known as a department of no. Um, you don't want to be the person that's saying you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. And I think that is really um that helps me be effective in my role is understanding the business, understanding what David is trying to do, understanding what Naveen is trying to do, um, the marketing department. Like, what are your goals? And knowing that helps me to make sure that I am helping you advance your goals. Um, so I've seen places, I'm not saying if I've experienced them personally, but I've seen places where like they go to legal as a last step, check the box. Can you just sign off on this contract or draft the contract after we've agreed to all of the terms? 
Um, but what I found is the environments that where I'm able to thrive the most, myself and my business partners, is one in which we are consulted early in, this, in the process. And, and sometimes that may look like me inserting myself, right? I do believe in the power of relationships. And so the majority of my business partners, especially on the partnership side, um, I'm all like, hey, what do you working on, right? Like what's in your pipeline? And it could be just conversations at the cooler, right? Or at an after work event, right? I think I've learned so many things about what my teammates have been working on in, at events outside of in the office that it, it's really helpful. So the the having that relationship where they trust me, they trust that the guidance that I will give them will steer them in the right direction, and sort of reduce risk, but then also I'm open-minded and helping move the business forward, I think is the environment um, in which I've seen the most success um, in. Um, and of course, I think like it's helpful when uh, they come to you with, with a question or are looking for help and guidance, but kind of once you establish that rapport with your business partners, it makes it that much easier to either say like, hey, I know here's what you wanna do and here's the way you're suggesting, let's consider it this way. Um, I think that that's been like the most helpful for me. So being transparent, open, honest, willing to learn, a very curious listener, and you know, with the intent on moving the business forward has been the relationships in which um, my businesses have been able to thrive. That's awesome, that's great advice. Thanks, Shanika. Naveen, uh, how about you? Yeah, uh, reinforce everything David and Shanika would say there that the teamwork and collaboration is extremely important. Communication often and frequently as an open door with your legal team is important. What I've learned early in my career was don't go to your legal team with and have them surprised by anything. That's where you will end up uh, backwards a little bit if they are not on the same page to some degree early. Damika is a great partner of mine and we have these conversations all the time. Luckily we sit close to each other where I get off a call with a few negotiation points or conversations that's happened yesterday. And I go walk to her and just, and openly communicate. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm hearing from my, my partner, my negotiation side of the table. And I get, you know, quick feedback. And then I know how to either handle that immediate situation or her thought process and thinking for future situations. All really helpful to me being a better negotiator on future deals. And then I believe also helpful to Mika as she thinks about how is Naveen and the rest of the partnerships business thinking when they approach these situations, we will always be tackling our jobs are essentially be tackling challenges all the time. And so the way to get to the, um, the solution of those challenges, frequent and often communication early in advance and no surprises is I learned that the recipe for success in, in my experience. That's great. Thanks, Naveen. I, I want to stick on that point, you know, talking about this theme of early communication and just communication, you know, the importance of that. So um, the question for all panelists, maybe we'll go in reverse order, um, start with, with Naveen. Uh, but just, you know, how does this uh, sponsorship or licensing deal come to be? If you can like give us, you know, peek behind the curtain, you know, you talked about, you know, walking across the floor and speaking with Danica, you know, what types of conversations are being had? Uh, what, what does that look like when you're, when you're getting that deal together? Yeah, again, we, we start early. So our legal team and my legal partner, Tamika, is aware of who I'm looking at. If, if it's an athlete or a property like the NBA, what are the general terms? Uh, what are we looking for the individual? And then also really important, 
what is kind of our timeline? Uh, understanding that work queue and pipeline of stuff, like Shanika was saying, is really important that we don't get off off sync and off calendar. So we have uh, weekly catch ups. Um, probably could do them daily sometimes uh, because we have multiple deals rolling together at once. They all touch different parts of the business. So I think it's um, talking frequently and early. And then the behind the scenes is you know sending documents like term sheets, early negotiation papers towards your way, getting any flags that could be uh, future problems um, uh, in advance for me so I can either navigate around them or, or preface them with my partner that I'm negotiating with on the other side to understand this is going to be a hurdle um, and vice versa. I hear inbound stuff and I let them know, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be sticklers on this piece of legal language we need to, to start thinking about solutions here now. Um, the other really important element that I think comes with often communication and being on the same pages. Tamika also has, um, because of our functions here, serves with other sport categories. So she's seeing how deals are done and negotiated, honestly, across the globe, whether it's our football players out of Europe, um, our newly announced Australian Open deal out in Australia, the laws, the uh, agents, ages of the athlete and the property all change by market. And even having some of those insights and learning she's gotten from some of the wins or losses we've taken on those deals help inform me to, to negotiate a deal in the best terms possible for protection of the company and growth of the company. So um, I think that is a little behind the scenes of how we remain successful and keep the business going forward at all times. That's great. That's really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Shamika, what about you? Um, so, so one of the things that is very helpful to me is making sure that I'm empowering my business partners to do their job, right? And I'm never, you know, saying, let me handle all the negotiations for you or let me negotiate the deal points. But I think one of the things that, um, that I've learned in, in a former life is like, it's never a good feeling when you come over to the lawyer and say, hey, you can you cap draft the contract? What can you draft a term sheet and the business partner does not know what the terms are? Um, and so it's, oh, yeah, we had a conversation. We want to enter into something like, OK, have you discussed how long have you discussed a rev split? Like, like, what does that look like? And I've been in a situation before where, like, my business partner had absolutely no idea. Um, but it was great because we then walked everything back and kind of walked hand in hand in terms of like, how are you thinking about this? What are the things that you need to get clarity on? Make sure that we're clear on and the partner is clear on as well. Um, and so, again, I think in my role, like I am here to assist Howard in whatever way possible. Um, I think that the early wins that I've had with my team here and with my past teams is really getting in front of them early um, to figure out what are they thinking about, right? Like who's on your target? What categories are you still trying to to sell. Um, and then I kind of walk through, hey, we have to be mindful of this partnership because they have XYZ rights, right? I've also, you know, even included myself, like say, when you put together a deck, a presentation deck, let me see it, right? Like, I want to see what it is that you're trying to sell, again, to make sure that, like, we're staring clear of any red flags or risks. And so, I think that that, um, you know, is probably one of the best things when you have that relationship where um, the business side is able to negotiate for the the larger items. What are the assets? What are the dollars? What's the dollars? Um, and then legal kind of gets in with all of the legal nuance and kind of goes back and forth on that front. 
um, but also advising to make sure that we're not selling stuff that we can't sell, right? We're, we're not walking the line between like what the league says you can and can't do, but then also making sure that like we don't cross any lines as it relates to existing sponsors or future categories or opportunities that we haven't even thought of, you know, at the time when they're trying to sell a deal. Yeah, that's that's really great. Thanks for thanks for that. And it reminds me a little bit, you know, working on deals as outside counsel, you know, talking about communication and trust and kind of just not, you know, it can be applied to a lot of different matters, but you're not assuming that someone else is going to handle certain elements of a deal, you know, kind of having that open line of communication say, you know, we're we're looking at this, but also, you know, XYZ on on that side of things too. So that's great. Thank you. Um David, what about you? So uh yeah, conversations are being had. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say those were two great answers. Anything I would say would be very duplicative. Maybe I'll just say how deal does come across for us. So the phases of it are really the outreach. We're trying to find people who would be a good fit to partner youth sports with three step. And then when someone does say, hey, this this works for our objectives. We go into a discovery phase. We want to know more about your business. We're really digging in. We're brainstorming internally. And I think that process is something that a lot of companies potentially that I've seen miss out on. So they're getting their sponsorship people or they're sometimes their marketing people in a room and they're discussing what could, could work best, where I, I like to take a little bit more of a broad approach and say, hey, let's get someone from ops in here. Let's get someone from legal in here or finance or whomever it may be. Because I think different perspectives throughout the company are really important to getting something comprehensive on paper. And I will say, it would really surprise you, or at least it did for me, where some of the best ideas come from in the organization. I think when you get that diversity of breadth of people in different uh, perspectives, the, the kind of ideas that come out really are pretty incredible. So the discovery process, I personally think, is the most important. Then you're going to a proposal. You have to have lockstep with legal in this to make sure that you're putting things in there that you can keep the promise for. So as I'm going out and making promises, can we keep that promise? Well, we certainly better be able to, and I think legal should be involved at that stage as well. So then the boring stuff, negotiation, contracting, I'll certainly say that's boring. Probably no one else on the call would. And, and then we're pretty wrapped up. But the communication and getting involved early, everything that the panelists have said, absolutely vital. Thanks. That's that's great. Uh, seeing some common themes uh, throughout our chat so far. So that's uh, that's good. Um, okay, one specific question. Kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, you know, something that we were thinking of is what impact do third parties have on sponsorship or licensing agreements? You know, some of you have talked about international experience, but what about you know things like governing bodies or the leagues themselves, um, you know, Shamika having worked at an MLB team and now an NWSL team, kind of two different leagues there. Maybe you, you want to uh, take this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's so interesting, like the nuances between MLB and NWSL, right? The league office at MLB is very robust. They have lawyers upon lawyers upon lawyers and ready to opine on almost any and everything that you present them with. Whereas the NWSL legal office, it's like, you know exactly who is there because their legal team has about three people in it. And so like it's it's varied in terms of league involvement. But one of the things that's consistent regardless is you have to, whatever industry you're in, you have to understand what the league's rules are. 
um, and what you need to steer clear of, as well as what you need their approval on. And so um, with the NWSL, like they they allow teams to to do to pretty much run your sponsorship deal, your licensing deals. Um, the league does review all sponsorship agreements um, to sign. And I think it's from a higher level to make sure that you have not sold the category that conflicts with a league sponsor um, or that your terms and your obligations on the players do not violate any CBA rules. Um, and so very higher level in terms of what the league um is able to review, but they do review all sponsorship agreements. Um, whereas MLB, like you could just run wild with it as long as, as long as it's not a certain category. And so uh, when I left the Cubs, one of the hottest new assets and categories was the Jersey patch sponsor. Um, and, you know, it was fairly new to MLB, not new to a lot of other sport um, sports, but because it was new, like they were, shaping and creating the rules and refining them as they went along. And so they wanted to ensure that clubs were not violating um, either the patch size or the restrictions for the postseason in which, you know, a lot of those rights revert back to the league. So they really was flying and building the plane as they were flying it. And so wanted to make sure that when you engaged in conversation with a Jersey patch sponsor, you had to reach out to the league to get initial permission. Um, and then any final agreement, you would have to, they would have to review it as well. And so on a sponsorship side, like that was like one of like the only times at which the league required that level of intervention. So whether it was a new asset or new product, a new category, um, that was something where the league certainly wanted to have oversight. And then for the licensing part, um, the league act as our as an interactive media rights agent on behalf of all of the clubs. So the league, in fact, handle a lot of those licensing deals um, for MLB teams. And so just slightly different um, across sport. Um, the ultimate goal, hopefully, is that the league is there to help uh, clubs advance um, and move forward. And so not to hinder you. And so besides the timing, like they were pretty a, a pretty good partner for us. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. And just to clarify, you know, that's you on, on the legal side, kind of communicating with the league on those on those points, just making sure you're not running afoul of league partners and league rules and things like that. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. And and what MLB did a good job at as well was assembling um, little smaller like focus groups um, with representatives from specific clubs, depending on what the matter was. So as they were considering you know, sponsorship elements, they would consult with the sponsorship team, which was four or five different teams to just, hey, what what should we be thinking about? What shouldn't we think about? Well, they have like a ticketing group as well. And so the league was really good on trying to involve and engage different um, aspects of a business of a team. And so just as they were thinking so that they weren't out on an island. That's interesting. Right. Just to <clears throat> pair off uh, what Shamika was saying, she gave a great example of a league and a team within that league operating hand in hand. And I saw a lot of that with the NBA. One interesting one that we are in the midst of now uh, as a shoe apparel partner uh, is with the IOC, so the, uh, the Olympic Committee, and USAP Basketball, which we have no affiliation and ties to legally in any fashion, but we still have to play by their rules. And they are requiring us to have our athletes that are going to go play in the Summer Olympics uh, one specifically is Kawhi Leonard. Uh, his shoes have to be, his New Balance shoes have to be a certain amount of color. 
high percentage, 51% red, and then the others are white and blue. They can't be neon green. And for us, they, they have no way of enforcing that on New Balance, but the repercussions are Kawhi could get kicked out of the Olympic team. And so it's a really interesting dynamic where Shamika has a good working relationship with their governing body or NWSL or the MLB. And, and we used to have a good one with the NBA teams where you're working towards this common goal for revenue driving. Uh, the IOC and USAB is partners with Nike or USAB is. They're trying to pr- protect their incumbent partner, have no authority over New Balance, but we do have to play by their rules. So I'm in, actually in touch with them now and our product team to understand the rules and regulations that they are given by the IOC in, in Switzerland to then enforce four you know, levels down with people they don't even know. And, and that's a really interesting because we could do whatever we want, but then the, the athlete that we sponsor and value so much could, could see the negative repercussions there. That, that's just an interesting example where there is no real commonality goal. We're actually in conflict, um, but we end up working together uh, despite of that. That is really interesting. Thanks for thanks for sharing that, um, David. Did you want to add anything on that? Otherwise, I I am going to pick up on something that Shamika talked about at the the jersey patches um, while at the Cubs. You know, that's something that we saw that you mentioned was new um, during the pandemic. And uh, my next question is, how did the pandemic impact um, sponsorship and licensing agreements? Um, you know. Or what trends have you seen recently kind of come out of that? Um, Shamika, did you want to start uh, with that one? Sure, absolutely. Um, if it's one thing that came out of the pandemic uh, professionally and also personally was really creativity, right? Um, folks, my team had to get real creative about how they were going to deliver assets. Um, and so yes. hard to get into that step, right? Hard to get into that step. What I, one thing I do love is my business partners who now are like force majeure experts, right? Like before it was a clause in the contract that was like, okay, it's legalese. I don't know what this means, right? They came out the pandemic like, wait, force majeure, hold on. She's <laughs> not agreeing to this without this, right? Make Goods became their best friend. And so- our team became really, really, really creative on what they could deliver and how it would be of value to a sponsor. And so you saw a jersey patch, which didn't just come out of the pandemic because it was an asset that the league was looking to capitalize on that and a helmet decal. Um, but we got really creative in terms of making sure that our sponsors received exposure um, from the eyeballs, right? So we know we could not attend games in person, but like, how can you make sure that on broadcast, like they are front and center? And so one of the things that a lot of MLB teams did, the Cubs did as well, was in the uh, bleachers, there were like tarps with signage, right? And so now you went from, you know, having a sign, um, in the ballpark for only people that were at the game to see to now it is plastered all over the screen anytime you watch a game, right? And so that that kind of signage or mound signage was another big thing. Um, my team got creative with, you know, starting like a, a contest called like Mound Ball with, with a partner sponsored. And so we really got creative on digital assets. Like what are the things that um, we are making sure that we're able to deliver and kind of over deliver on what your contract said, but also ways in which kept the sponsor happy 
Um, and, and and we didn't try to do it all in that first year, right? What we said is that we don't know how long this will last. We don't know when the ballpark will open up and we'll have butts and seats, but here are how we here's how we're thinking of it. Um, and really got sponsors to lean in and say, oh, well, we love this and not that, right? So our contracts were pretty um, favorable to us. It allowed us to determine what that make good would be, but engaging our partners early and often, like similar to what David mentioned, um, was really helpful for us to make sure that we secured dollars and that we were able to deliver on you know, the promises of, of the contract. That's great. Uh, yeah, I think I remember reading, like you mentioned, uh, the pandemic kind of pressed the fast forward button on innovation, some of these different technologies that you're talking about. I think that was, you know, the, something that I was really interested in seeing the new um, inventory, the creative solutions and on the make goods and things like that. Um, so it's really interesting to hear. Uh, David, how, how about you? What trends or you know, what things came out of the pandemic? Um, yeah, it's... It's tough following Shamika. That's another great answer. And I will be duplicative here a little bit, but one thing that I think is important is there's a deal on paper and then there's the spirit of the partnership. And so when you are agreeing to the partnership, the contract, that's just really protection. The agreement is what you are making between two parties. And if the if you're in a five-year relationship partnership deal, the deal in year five really shouldn't look particularly similar to the deal in year one. So, you know, while the lawyers have done a wonderful job of aligning all the priorities and making sure the ink is dry and we are very protected, really things should be changing all the time. Well, the pandemic just put that on steroids. Really, the pandemic was something that came along. And if I never hear force majeure again, it'll be too soon. And if I never hear the word make good, it made my skin crawl a little when Shamika said that, it will be very much too soon. But you know, the Browns had about, I was at the Browns at the time in the NFL, we had about $40 million that was at risk because we didn't, we really didn't know. I mean, it was unknown for everyone going into this. And you know, we kept every penny. I think we were one of the only teams in the NFL to, to keep every penny. What did we do differently? We sat down in that brainstorm and we just came up with solutions. And I think Shamika said it extremely well. It's very collaborative. It's very creative. And it makes me think, what were we doing before? Well, we were selling big signs and we were selling these things that got in front of a lot of eyeballs. And now we had to hit people where they were. You know, they aren't in the stadium. They're at home. And so the assets that translate very well, digital, social, our app, um, and just different ways to engage the fan that wasn't Hey, look at this big poster that's in uh, center field or that's on the 50 yard line. And so it was just, it was very different. And the way we kept the money was we were very collaborative in a way that we said, we're going to lock ourselves in this room. We are going to come up with a solution and you are going to be happy and genuinely happy. We're going to over deliver. And that's a lot of the stuff that has stayed. You know, we're over delivering on proposals and contracts and we're making sure people get the ROI that they deserve and that they need for their, their marketing deals. And, you know, that's that's almost a true benefit of what happened during the pandemic. That's great. Yeah, that's really insightful. I think, you know, as as a, an attorney on the legal side, you know, as we're seeing it in contracts post COVID, you know, in terms of the, the force majeure and every day, you know, they will negotiate in good faith. So that's a good you know, kind of peek behind the curtain of, yeah. of what that looks like. One of the other things that came out of the pandemic, I do think people are a little bit more on both sides 
are a little bit more risk adverse. So they're highly protected in their contracts. I think there are more shorter terms coming out of it. That's a little anecdotal, but I do think, you know, people are really looking to avoid, uh, we're in this for seven years and the language of the agreement won't allow us any uh, wiggle room either way. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Naveen, how about you? Uh, trends, pandemic, post-pandemic? Uh, yeah, I think not to duplicate too much innovation, creativity, make goods, um, all came to life. What I think also got spurred into quick reaction was two things, almost the creation of um, a byproduct industry of these make goods. I remember the NBA worked with Microsoft to do these virtual viewing games, and that became its own kind of after the fact, still living on, Zoom meet and greets with athletes as sponsorship assets that get sold. Uh, you could talk about virtual signage that is now a mainstay in a lot of lot of uh, sports leagues and entities that, um, like Dave was saying, those were big static banners at one point, they're physical. Now you can sell these things quarter by quarter on placements that have stayed around for a long time. And there's really cool ways of how brands and agency have come to use those new assets um, in new fashions that have stuck around. And then old things that have just completely died off, like old school signage is, is, is a good one. I think the other thing that got spurred really quickly, um, and it was at a boiling point already, was this um, name, image, and likeness, uh, which you know is predominantly in college, but also goes all the way down to high school in some degrees. And that was a new sponsorship field that really wasn't there before. So I think that was an interesting one and, and still one that's pretty, pretty evolving. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to pick up on that and dig into the NIL. Everybody's heard of NIL, um, I'm sure, that are that are listening. So, uh, you know, just building off that, um, you know, that seems like a whole new category of of uh, customer. Or, and, you know, the athletes now have this ability to enter into all sorts of agreements. You know, how has that impacted? Um, your role, um, what kind of things are you seeing? Naveen, we'll stick with you on, on this one. Yeah, it, it's definitely shaken up the landscape in a lot of ways. And my role it is to look at those athletes and determine whether we want to bring them on board as ath athletic ambassadors for the brand and see if there's a potential for a future, much longer relationship. Um, and so we have to look deeper into college kids, high school athletes, and that is a uh, place that is really hard to grasp and evaluate. It's, it, there's dozens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of high school girl basketball players that I am evaluating and have to drill that down to a select few that are really great at college. Those select few have 144 spots to go to the WNBA, which is, you could argue, harder to be a WNBA player than it is to be an NBA player because of the limited amount of slots. So it's working that math backwards to analyze are they a good fit? Will they pan out athletically um, four, five, six, seven years later? And then how do you value that teenager? I mean, the amount of money that's going out to these children under 18 and slightly over is a ridiculous amount of money. Is it being spent well? Is it being um, distributed to the right individual or family members or not family members? All are concerns for us. So we've, and New Bounce personally, treaded pretty softly. We did our first basketball NIL deal this summer. D'Amica and I worked on that. It was really fun. Uh, one or two more in the pipeline as we speak now, but really being cautious to understand this is the individual we want to get behind and spend and that we can service that athlete again. I think 
moving out of apparel footwear, lots of student athletes are getting brand deals across the board. I think the most popular ones I've seen are um, usually fast casual restaurants, Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's, um, as well as energy drinks are really hot right now and, and waters prime and such. So you'll see that space flooded car dealerships at the local level. What I would advocate for is to help everybody in, in the pie, the school, the children, the parents, the, the brands, the agents that are out there representing is some sense of uniformity at a federal national level is yet to come because the, the deals now are state by state regulation, which change as quickly as the state legislature changes. In some instances, some states are harsher. California was obviously the tip of the spear with NIL, and then it kind of broke broke the dam with the NCAA. Now the NCAA just issued new laws about they're okay with it being, um, uh, you know, boosters being, being, being spending on athletes. So until there's some uniformity, we're still going to see discrepancies and honestly, a little bit of unfairness across state-by-state regulation, and then brands are going to be put in precarious situations. And that's why New Balance would, would love to get in, and I think we will, but we're going to be a little timid because the the, the legal complications are, are most paramount and scariest in the NIL space because you don't know who's signing what. Um, and you don't even know if they have legal representation sometimes. It might be the parent signing it. How well does that hold up in court? Um, and then you don't know who's who's falsely representing them. So it's an area I would, I would caution everybody to be careful about until there's some more regulation. And I know that sounds like the opposite of NIL um, to free up the space, but it is needed similar to gambling and, and betting. There needs to be some evil, even level playing field before we uh, get more into it. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it, for athletes getting uh, equally compensated for what they perform and generate for these schools and, and everything else. Um, but it should be treated carefully. Yeah, definitely. That's a great, that's a great point. You know, a lot of these articles, you know, first of all, and, and they all, just like you said, seems to be evolving minute by minute. A lot of the articles you see, it's, it's still like the wild west. Um, so I kind of agree. It seems like uniformity would be particularly helpful. Um, maybe coming soon. Shamika, did you want to add? I was going to ask Naveen, like, what would you predict would be like a timeline in terms of like when federal? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get to politics here, but it will be determined by the House, uh, the Senate, who's running it and how much of a priority is it? You know, there's lots of things going on in the world right now. It became a hot button issue, I think, through COVID and the pandemic. And there was lawsuits and cases. Uh, that got the media's attention and therefore got a federal federal level of attention. Same with gambling and, and same with anything that passes at the federal level. If it's hot and it's in media buzzworthy, then you may see the, the benefits after. Um, so I, I honestly couldn't give you that unless there's enough advocates at that level or lobbyists at that level that are seeing financial gains. It, it may not pass for a while because um, the other funny bit is these students come and go. They're not there in college forever. They then go to the pros and then it becomes not an issue anymore when you graduate college and you have uh, you can earn you know money doing anything. So I wonder how long uh, it would take. Really good question. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Good answer. <laughs> uh, did anyone else, David, did you have anything to add uh, in terms of NIL? Uh, no. Okay, great. So I think we have a few minutes left. 
Um, if anyone has any questions from the audience, uh, goal is to save a few minutes. I see one question in the Q&A, um, and I think personally, I think uh, was partially touched on, uh, maybe not directly, but in, in everybody's introduction. Uh, but the question is, uh, someone's graduating law school in May and eager to work in the sports industry, what advice do you all have um, to combat most entry-level jobs requiring several years of experience? I think just kind of breaking into into the sports industry. Um, yeah, I can. Yeah, go I ahead. can give a, just a quick one on this. I think it, it's challenging. It's so hyper competitive to get into the sports industry, and then once they get there, they realize it's just a job. But with that said, I will say, network. You really have to get out there, reach out. You know, for anyone who is in law school, I would gladly connect with you on a, the professional networks, LinkedIn, et cetera, and make sure that you're staying in touch as people post things, as you see something that might be an opportunity that fits where you want to go, reach out, connect. No one's annoyed by, you know, someone saying, is this a good fit for me? Can you make an introduction? Can you ensure that I get uh, an interview? And if it's the right fit, you know, we don't want to be your recruiters, but certainly open network and someone, uh, some people that always want to help. So networking is, is I think, number one. Yeah, I'll just add to that a little bit. And I know like when you say networking uh, to a student or a law student, sometimes it's very intimidating, right? Um, I mean, I just I just look at it as, you know, like make sure you are dedicating time to relationship building, like building those relationships with people that are in the places and spaces so that you are top of mind when something comes up, so that you are able to ask questions about what their day to day is like, what challenges do they see? what keeps them up at night, um, and also what you're working on and doing, right? So the more that I hear a student tell me like, hey, you know, I interned with so-and-so, these were the experiences that I had, like the more it's helping me to identify opportunities that come across my desk. So one of the things that I, I realized, and I know Tamika could, would certainly agree, is that especially in the sports law world, which sports law isn't really a thing, it's corporate law, or a sports organization or within a sports context um, is that the industry is very small, right? And so you have people that go from one job to another, but a lot of the players are the same. And so um, it's good that when you build those relationships, not necessarily when you are looking for a job, but just in general, that you are top of mind. Um, the last thing that I would say too is, while very competitive, yes, you should also be thinking about ways in which you could just get experience that will prepare you for your sport, for your opportunity within sport. So, you know, our role is very transactional in nature. Um, so contract drafting, we do a lot of labor and employment, sponsorship agreements. And so like to the extent that you are able to get into it, a, a, a company where you're able to build those skills and build your toolkit, I think that that would lend yourself, um, that would be very favorable for when that opportunity comes along for you. Thanks, Shamika. Naveen, there's one question that just came in, I think would be a good one for you to answer. The question is, as far as deals with individual athletes, uh, what is it like working with agents or, or representatives? Uh, it's it's um, fun uh, is the best word I can describe it. You deal with a whole host of personalities. We have um, a really good relationship with kind of the, the most well-known power agent, Rich Paul, who's LeBron's agent, a whole host of other 
uh, athletes that we've gotten really close to. And he, he's probably one of our strongest agents. And then we have others on the other spectrum that Kawhi Leonard is represented by his um, uncle uh, named Dennis Robertson. And, and you just deal with different personalities and they have different objectives. Some have worked in the industry forever and are pros and experts. Um, and then you have some that are smaller boutique agencies. Um, so it's, it, it's very different bearing on athlete. I can only speak to the basketball and the football athletes um, side. They are typically fantastic people. And I think it sometimes gets lost on, on common people before you get in the sports industry, that these are superstar athletes. They are just like everybody else. They um, laugh and joke and get on the phone and need lunch and are low maintenance, most of them, just like everybody else. So it, it's kind of funny to give them star treatment and they shoo that away. We had an athlete, uh, you know, kind of walk 20 minutes to the Boston Cold to come have dinner with us by himself. And he's a superstar NBA champion athlete. And he's like, I don't need to take a car. I'm just going to walk through the public um, notoriety and everything. And, and it's kind of, it's humbling to see because they're truly individuals. And we at New Balance definitely try to work with individuals who are humble and, and, and um, about their beginnings and where they are now. So I, I think it varies. It varies on who you work with. I've only had 99% positive interactions with athletes, um, both in basketball and, and beyond. Um, so it's actually really fun. And I know I'm really, really privileged to do what I do. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, I think that's a great place to wrap things up. We one minute early, uh, right on time. Uh, thanks everyone for joining and a huge thank you to our panelists. This was an awesome uh, discussion today. I hope everybody uh, found it valuable and as enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, so thanks everyone. Thanks for hosting, Brennan. Thanks everybody.